Let's pray that God would help us to uh, understand his message to us today. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, we do pray you will give us understanding, wisdom and insight to believe and apply the message of Scripture to our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever experienced something that was just not what you expected? Sometimes it's not what you expected because it may really let us down, like my being underwhelmed by the astronomical clock in the main square of Prague, which I know the Shemans will enjoy. Wonderful old clock. Every hour it was supposed to do these wonderful things. I stood there to watch it. I have never been so underwhelmed. So underwhelmed was I that I was amused and I bought a souvenir cup, uh, which I still have at home. But sometimes things are not what we expect because we are positively surprised by them. My first time to see the Sydney Dance Company uh, would be a case in point for me. I went along many years ago with a friend uh, expecting to see something cultural, something that would be good for me, improving, etc., all those sorts of things. Wasn't really expecting to enjoy it that much. But what I saw really blew me away. I really loved it. And I liked watching all the dancers. I liked the, the, the female dancers. They were great. But to my great surprise, the dancers who I really enjoyed were the men. They were so dynamic. It was just it was really quite breathtaking, I thought. Uh, not what I expected. Better than I expected. Now, in today's passage, Jesus is certainly not what people expected. He was not what the paralytic and his friends expected. He's not what Matthew expected. He's not what the teachers of the law expected. He's not what the Pharisees expected. And he's not even what John the Baptist's disciples expected. And if we interact with the text, he may not be entirely what we expect either, whether we're new to Christianity or we've been a follower of many years' experience. Well, let's see. This week, we're continuing our Term 1 series in the book of Matthew. We're up to chapter 9. We're looking at verses 1 to 17. And I've called today's talk, Forgiveness and Mercy. And it's Jesus' display of and prioritising of forgiveness and mercy is what was not expected in this passage of the people he encounters. And it's what makes Jesus better than was expected by the people Jesus encounter in this passage. So hopefully uh, this morning's passage may surprise, perhaps slightly unnerve, uh, perhaps refresh you. Let's, let's see. Now an outline of the main points is on the handout, which many of you will have picked up on the way in and it's on the screen. Firstly, I want to think about the priority of forgiveness, verses 1 to 8. Then the product of mercy, verses 9 to 13. And finally and briefly, the plan of God. Uh, verses 14 to 17. So that's where we're going. Firstly, the priority of forgiveness, verses 1 to 8. Now, you may recall if you were here last week or if you've read the end of Luke chapter, not Luke, Matthew chapter 8, that Jesus went over the Lake Galilee, he healed or he exercised evil spirits from two people who'd been possessed. Then after this incredible act, the local townspeople say, Jesus, can you leave us? And this is when the passage starts. Chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over 
and came to his own town. Now that's referring to Capernaum. Here, verse 2, some men brought to him a paralysed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now many of you might think, oh yes, it's that great story of the paralysed man. Yes, that's right. His friends bring him on a mat, they get to the house, it's really crowded, they can't get into Jesus, so they take him up onto the roof and they, what do they do for goodness sake? They remove bits of the roof and they lower the man down right in front of Jesus. I did that in Sunday school or I, I heard that story many times or whatever it may be. Now can I say it is that incident, but all that sort of colourful information is not here, in Matthew's account. He doesn't tell you about the roof or lowering through the roof or the crowds or anything like that. Matthew's account of the incident is much sparser than the more detailed accounts you can read in Mark and Luke. And what Matthew seems to focus on is on Jesus's interaction with the teachers of the law. So that's where we're going to focus. So the paralytic comes to be healed and then Jesus, surprisingly, forgives his sins. Then, for the first time in the Gospel of Matthew, for the first time in Jesus' adult ministry, Jesus encounters opposition. This is the first time as an adult in Matthew, Jesus is opposed. Because we read in verse 3 that the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. Here we go. Now, what's the problem here? Well, uh, the Gospel of Mark is helpful because it unpacks what the teachers of the law were thinking. And they're thinking, who can forgive sins but God alone? And here's Jesus purporting to forgive this guy's sins. Well, the teachers of the law are clearly both right and wrong at this point. They're right, only Jesus can forgive sins. But they're wrong because they haven't realised who Jesus is. You see, Jesus has to be displaying all this incredible authority over sickness, over evil spirits, over nature, etc., over death. How can he show that authority? Because he is the Son of God, he is God, he is divine. Only God can forgive sins, but Jesus, as the Son of God, can clearly forgive sins because he is God. At this point, the teachers of the law don't get who Jesus is. But Jesus then highlights his authority again with some more evidence of his authority. Verse 4, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man, that's Jesus, has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralysed man, get up, take your mat, go home. The man got up and went home. Kaboom! <laughs> Big act. Jesus does the thing you can see, that is, heal him to reinforce that he has the authority to do those things you can't see, which is to forgive the man's sins. So, think of the paralysed man. He came to get healed. Not only did he get it healed, he also got his sins forgiven. Jesus wasn't what he expected at this point, but he was better. He got more than he bargained for. Jesus was better than he expected. Healed and forgiven. But the teachers of the law weren't alone in not quite getting Jesus at this point. You see, the crowd 
don't really get Jesus either. Did you notice verse 8? When the crowd saw this, they're filled with awe and they praised God. Now, this is so good so far. Then look at the next bit. They praised God who had given such authority to man. Seems at this point, they still think Jesus is just a man. Jesus is not what they're expecting. He's proving difficult to grasp. Now, why do you think Jesus forgives the man's sins before he heals him? Well, I think it's because forgiving sins is actually Jesus' priority in his ministry. Can I say, it's so much more important to have your sins forgiven than to see. It's more important to have your sins forgiven than to smell. It's more important to have your sins forgiven than to be able to walk. See, having our sins forgiven doesn't just enable us to have a relationship with God now. It means that when we die, we look forward to heaven rather than hell. <laughs> having our sins forgiven is so much more important. So, the, you know, Do we see, like Jesus, the priority of forgiveness? Now, here's a question, perhaps, to help us to think about this. Which would you prefer for yourself or for your parents, siblings, spouse, kids, grandkids, whatever, your loved ones? Which would you prefer? Would you prefer that you or they were married or forgiven? Which would you rather them be, married or forgiven? Would you rather they had a good job or that they were forgiven? Would you rather that they would be in good health or forgiven? Would you rather that they had the, the privilege of having children or that they're forgiven? What do we pray for most for them? And what do we delight in telling others about them most? Now, my kids aren't here, so I don't mind saying this, but my greatest desire for my children is that they will be forgiven, that they will receive the benefits of Jesus' death on the cross for them. Now, relatively speaking, and relatively speaking, and hear what I'm saying, relatively speaking, I don't care if they get married. I don't care if they have kids. I don't care if they're perceived to be a success in life in comparison to whether they're forgiven. So do our prayers, our conversations and our use of time reflect this sort of priority which Jesus gives to the forgiveness of sins? Something to think about. So Jesus is here clearly on about forgiveness. But he's also really on about mercy. And this is verses 9 to 13, the product of mercy. Now, we are almost sure that the Gospel of Matthew was written by the Apostle Matthew. Matthew itself doesn't say that. It's not in the Bible that, hey, I'm Matthew and I'm writing this, this Gospel, but church history tells us it's almost definitely Matthew. So, do you see what Matthew is writing about in verses 9 to 13? He's writing about himself. He's writing about his significant encounter with Jesus. He's in his own historical account. He's writing about how he received mercy. Look at verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. He's talking about himself here, remember? Now, uh, many of us know that tax collectors weren't particularly liked at that time. 
But if we're thinking that Matthew at this point was like someone from the Australian Taxation Office, the ATO, can I say, no, Matthew was not as well-liked, as well-respected and well-regarded as someone from the ATO. Miles less so. You see, he was collecting money or tolls for the occupying Romans or perhaps for Herod Antipas. We're not exactly sure. But he would have been despised by most Jews as unpatriotic, perhaps a traitor, doing things which were unclean, and he probably also extorted money. Probably better to compare him to a Nazi collaborator in one of the occupied countries of Europe, say Holland, than an ATO official. ATO officials were far more loved than this guy would have been. Matthew would have been an absolute outcast in Jewish society, yet Jesus calls him. And not only that, Jesus ends up dining with him in verse 10, along with many other tax collectors and sinners, in inverted commas. Now, the sharing of meals was incredibly important in that culture. And so here's Jesus dining with the Capernaum underclass, perhaps even the Capernaum underworld. What's he doing? Well, the teachers of the law didn't get Jesus in the earlier part of the passage, and in these verses, the Pharisees now don't get it either. Look at verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? See, the Pharisees, as I understand it, were very concerned with holiness, and holiness for them involves separation from evil. And so in their worldview, that meant, okay, we want nothing to do with Gentiles, we want nothing to do with you know, tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners and that sort of thing. We want to stay separate, away from, apart from, everything unclean. Yet here is Jesus eating and drinking with just these sorts of people. Now, why is Jesus doing it? Well, it's not because Jesus is a bit of a bad boy. He likes a bit of bad. He likes hanging out with the bad guys because they're more interesting and fun than some of those, you know, stuffy religious people. That's not why he's doing it. Uh, Jesus is hanging out with them because they really need him. He explains in verse 12, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is on about showing mercy of a particular sort here. And the ultimate example of mercy is, of course, Jesus coming to our planet to save sinners of course, of whom are all of us. Now, do we want, like Jesus, to be people of mercy? Do we want to be known as merciful people? Well, there are lots of things we can do. Perhaps you own a trailer. If you own a trailer, everyone wants to, wants to be your friend, don't they? Because they want to borrow your trailer, because everyone wants things moved by a trailer. Perhaps you'll be merciful to others by lending your trailer or giving them a hand with your trailer sometimes. Perhaps you can show mercy to others by making them casseroles when they need it and taking it round good thing to do. Perhaps you can show mercy by lo for lobbying for the rights of, say, refugees. Wonderful thing to do. These are all great ways to show mercy to others. But the most merciful thing we can do for others is to promote God's mercy, to help people to get access to and to hear God's message of mercy, his offer of forgiveness and salvation. That's the most merciful thing we can do if we want to be merciful to others. And of course, this story tells us that no one is beneath God's mercy, not even 
the tax collector. Okay? Now, uh, I like reading Christian biographies, and in various Christian biographies, I've seen that God has shown mercy to New York gang members crossing the switchblade. He's shown uh, mercy to African terrorists. Stephen Lungu's out of the darkness. He showed mercy to people in Hong Kong drug dens. I think that's Chasing the Dragon, Jackie Pullinger. I could go on. But just in my normal life, I know that God has shown mercy to church-going middle-aged ladies, uh, first-grade rugby league footballers, a man who was once heavily involved in the Sydney gay scene. You know, all these normal and, you know, slightly unusual, you know, everyone, the whole gamut, God can show mercy to. And so uh, those verses, I think, are all about mercy most clearly seen in Jesus coming to save those who needed salvation, a doctor for the sick. Now, this is all part of what's sort of alluded to in verses 14 to 17, which is the plan of God. Now, this final section uh, opens with John's disciples asking why Jesus' disciples don't fast. Now, if you're a Jew at the time, Jews were supposed to fast on the Day of Atonement. Uh, Pharisees, as I understand it, would often fast twice a week. And it seemed from this passage that John the Baptist's followers also fasted a lot as well. But Jesus' don't. And so they ask him about it. Jesus answers, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, then they will fast. Now, Jesus is saying that now, when he's speaking, is not a time for fasting. Now, he's not just saying at this point, hey, I'm a good bloke, let's party. That's not the, 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 the entirety of it, it's so much more than that. He's basically indicating that, look, the Son of God is here, it's now a time for rejoicing. Now, we know that Jesus uh, is the Son of God and the Son of God is there because he's already been showing all these sorts of authority that only God could show over sickness, over evil spirits, to forgive sins, over death, over nature, etc., all that stuff. But even the metaphor he uses here highlights the fact that he is divine. Because what you may not know is that if you read Isaiah chapter 61 and 62, God is likened to a bridegroom, okay? And here's Jesus referring himself as a bridegroom. Strong implication, I'm God, I'm divine, highlighting who he is. It's a time for rejoicing. Now then verses 16 and 17 has that famous bit of teaching about not mixing new and old cloth and not putting new wine into old wineskins. And um, Jesus is really highlighting here, he is bringing in a new way of relating to God and a new way of living. He's in effect bringing in this new covenant, which was read about uh, in Jeremiah 31 with forgiveness of sins and all these other things, which it entails. And Jesus is saying that you don't mix a bit of the old way with this new way I'm bringing in. You don't mix it in together. No, you go with Jesus and the new way all the way. This is the new way. This is the way of salvation and living. Okay, now at this point you might think, right, what's this passage all about? Well, Jesus is certainly revealing who he is uh, progressively in these, in these chapters, sure. We see in this chapter that many people just don't get who Jesus is. He's not what they expected, sure. But why is Jesus here doing all these things in the first place? Well, we get a hint of that in the priority he gives to forgiving the man's sins in verses 1 to 8. And then he unpacks why he's here further in his explanation of mercy uh, in verses 9 to 13, where he says, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And of course, everyone is a sinner. 
And this is the new way which Jesus is bringing in, talked about in verses um, 14 to 17. All this is because Jesus is bringing a new way whereby we can have our sins forgiven, have God show his mercy to us and have our current and eternal destiny totally changed. Good question to ask is, are we on board with Jesus' new way? Well, can I say it's something that we at this church try to do. It's why we do Christianity Explained or something like it most terms because we think it's a good opportunity people to hear about this new way. That's why uh, I thought it would be good to encourage people to read a book like Sam Chan's book, you know, How to Talk About Jesus, because we think that it's important that people get to hear about this new way. If you had kids in youth group here or grandkids in youth group, they're regularly encouraged, you know, bring your friends along to youth group. Why do they do that? Well, because we want your kids or grandkids' friends, we want them to hear about Jesus' new way uh, as well. That's why we do lots of other things as well. Now, what about you? Um, as you sit here this morning, perhaps there are a few people here this morning who were not yet followers of Jesus, like Matthew, for example. Are you going to follow him like Matthew and uh, realise that he's someone better than you expect? Or are you going to perhaps resist him, like the Pharisees or the teachers of the law? Good question to ask. If you are a follower of Jesus, which I, I trust is many, most, perhaps even all the people here, I, I don't know, um, I suspect at this point you're probably falling into one of three groups. You could be a bit cynical about this message. You could be a bit discouraged about this message. You might be quite motivated and keen about this message. There might be other groups as well. I don't know. If you're in a fourth category, come and tell me afterwards. Sometimes it can be a little easy as a Christian to be a little bit, and we won't admit this to others, usually not, a little bit cynical. You'll go home from church today and someone might say to you, or you, know, or you might think to yourself, what was today's sermon all about? Oh, it was about evangelising others, wasn't it? Gee, how many times have I heard that? Tell me something I don't know. Right? Sometimes we can get a little bit cynical. Well, can I say, uh, this passage certainly would encourage us to promote the message of Jesus' new way of forgiveness and mercy. I mean, what on earth else is this passage about, if not about that? Now, how might you experience this a bit afresh? Can I say, well, look, perhaps you're someone who appreciates forgiveness. I mean, who doesn't appreciate forgiveness? Perhaps you're someone who appreciates mercy. Who doesn't like seeing people show others mercy? Well, God is the ultimate giver of forgiveness and the ultimate shower of mercy, and his new way, his gospel, is all about forgiveness and mercy. Perhaps reminding yourself that this message is all about forgiveness and mercy may make you a little less cynical. I don't know. A thought. Perhaps some people here are a little bit discouraged about this message because you sort of think, well, look, yeah, I know I'm supposed to do this and I'm supposed to promote it, but no one ever becomes a Christian. I mean, you know, it's just a bit discouraging. Well, it's interesting. I, I imagine Jesus could have felt uh, quite similar as well. I mean, sure, Matthew follows him and some others do, but ooh, the Pharisees <laughs> don't seem to be following him and the teachers of the law don't seem to be following him and a lot of the people who seem to like him they still think he's just a man at this point. They don't seem to be following him. I mean, Jesus experienced a lot of people not wanting to follow him. The Apostle Paul, when he was doing his missionary work, lots of people didn't want to listen to his message as well. It's the same with us. However, for Jesus, some did respond to his message. For Paul, some did respond to the message. And for us, even though some of our loved ones may not yet have followed, responded to the message, 
Look at all the people sitting in here today who have. <laughs> you know, the reality is some do and some haven't yet. And for those of you who are thinking, wow, this, I'm really excited by this passage. Uh, this is an important message. It's reminded me that it's an important message. This message is all about forgiveness. It's all about mercy. I want others to know about it. Well, great. I hope this passage has reminded us, you, whoever you are, to keep going in this direction. Now, um, there's a well-known English minister and evangelist by the name of Rico Tice, who I've sometimes quoted. I, I have a good regard for him. I've met him once. And I enjoyed meeting him. I sometimes quote him in sermons. I've read one of his books. I've got it here. Rico Tice, Honest Evangelism. And I've listened to a number of his sermons online. And um, in one of the sermons I listened to him give once, uh, he speaks of one of his uncles. One of Rico Tice's uncles. He was a kind, loving uncle, according to Rico. Uh, for decades, though, he had not shown any interest in the Christian faith whatsoever. Rico had sent him books, DVDs, they had apparently had zero effect. And then in 2017, I think it was, he got news that his uncle was dying and didn't have long to live. Uh, so Rico was clearly concerned about where his uncle would spend eternity and went to see him. Now, Rico lived in London, his uncle was in North Wales, it was a five-hour trip. So we thought, right, I'm going to travel the five hours to go and see him. So he went up to North Wales, visited the uncle. The uncle was overjoyed to see his nephew, to see Rico, when he arrived and gave him a hug, apparently. Rico then had a bit of a chat and offered his uncle communion. You know, do you want me to give you some communion? Remember, Rico's a minister. Uh, the uncle didn't want it. Uh, Rico nervously asked, you know, uncle, do you, do you have a faith? The uncle sort of avoided the question. At the end of the visit, which I think was maybe 15 minutes or 30 minutes, Rico prayed for his uncle as he left, but went away very discouraged. Rico is walking to the lift. He gets to the lift. The lift door opens. A guy gets out of the lift in a clerical collar and says, oh, I think I'm in the wrong place. Rico says, no, you're not. Um, saying he's a minister, look, my uncle is up there in Ward X, Bed Y, whatever it was. Um, look, I want you to go up and speak to him and tell him that, you know, I'll take responsibility, tell him that his nutty nephew sent you along. Now, this minister wasn't the hospital chaplain. The minister was trying to visit his own wife, who was in hospital and got out on the wrong floor. But he said, OK, look, I'll go and visit your uncle. So he apparently went and visited Rico's uncle then, I think the next morning, maybe some other times, I'm not sure. Not long later, the uncle died. So Rico rang up the minister who'd meant to see him. And the minister said, yes, well, I, I went and saw him before he died. I gave him the last rites, but he didn't seem to like it very much, but I gave them to him anyway. And that was it. Then the uncle died, apparently resistant to the message right until the end of his life. Now, uh, this story has been sticking in my head the last few days. I've been thinking about it a bit and I have a whole lot of reactions to it as I reflect on it. Firstly, it's actually a bit discouraging. Um, it highlights that you know, some people have hardened their heart to the good news until the very end. And it seems to me that this man did that. Secondly, though, it, it gives me a bit of perspective. It reminds me the, of the importance of what Jesus came to do. You see, eternity is at stake for people in our suburb. <laughs> Everyone we walk past, eternity is at stake for them. And the message of mercy and forgiveness is what people need to have their eternity changed. It gives me a bit of perspective. 
because we're all going to die, aren't we? And everyone we know will as well. Now, it's encouraging slightly in one sense too because God seemed to keep giving this uncle opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. He didn't take any of them, but God was, you know, keep giving him opportunities. Now, it's also a little bit encouraging because Rico Tice and presumably uh, the minister, they had become Christians. So they've heard the gospel and responded and said, the uncle may not have, but Rico Tice and the minister, they had. So don't forget that, you know, they were believers. And I also find it a little bit encouraging because Rico took seriously this message of mercy and forgiveness. He took it seriously enough that even though it wasn't part of his brief at work, he travelled for five hours to visit his uncle and travelled five hours back. He thought it was that important that he should do that. Now, you might think Rico Tice, he must have found that interest easy to do. You know, he's a minister. Uh, I've read this book by Rico Tice called Honest Evangelism. I'm going to read you the first paragraph of the book. You ready? I find evangelism hard. That's the first paragraph. I mean, he didn't necessarily find it easy. He was certainly inconvenient. But he did it because he knows what's important. You know, he, he took this seriously. What about that other minister whose name I don't know, who I, let's assume he was a Christian. He went to go and see his wife who was in hospital. But by accident, he ends up meeting this crazy guy from London who says, go and visit my uncle and tell him that his loony, his nutty nephew sent him. Now, this guy was probably busy, had things to do, but he took time out to go and visit the uncle, not just that day, but the next day as well, maybe some other times. Would have been inconvenient. Why did he do it? Presumably because the message of forgiveness and mercy he also thought was important. So there are my reflections on that story, because there's a lot to be encouraged for, there's a real perspective which it gives, and it's also disappointing as well. But that's what life is like, isn't it, if you're involved in this sort of ministry? In fact, after the previous service, a lady came up to me and outlined an experience she had very similar to Rico's with one of her friends. Um, you know, there we go. Conclusion. Um, Jesus' mission on earth, the new way he bought, the new covenant he bought in, is concerned with forgiveness and mercy. And this forgiveness and mercy changes people's destiny for eternity. Now, at the time of these incidents described in Matthew 9, uh, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees just didn't get Jesus. He was not what they expected. Jesus was more of a doctor than a policeman. He was more of a rescuer than a religious expert. He was more inclusive rather than exclusive. Jesus was not what they expected, but as Matthew and as the paralytic man found, Jesus wasn't what they expected, but he was far better than they expected. He brought this message of mercy and forgiveness, which is now summarised in the Gospel, so if I was to summarise what I think is the take-home big idea uh, of this passage, I would say, prioritise God's forgiveness, promote God's mercy. Let me pray for us. Uh, Heavenly Father, we do thank you for these um, stories, some of which are very well known. We pray that we would take to heart the message uh, therein. We pray that we would prioritise the importance of people being forgiven as Jesus did with the paralysed man, we pray that we would promote your mercy as your son did with Matthew and his friends. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.